from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Luisa Beck from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. Lori Artani over at the Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Lena Mohammed in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 14th. Today, looking back at four years of Trump's immigration policies and a debate over what constitutes a meal in the UK. The United States has always deported immigrants. I mean, from, you know, going back to Ellis Island, which was, you know, a a place to welcome immigrants, but it was also a jail in part, and it was a processing center. I think under Trump, the rhetoric changed. Maria Sacchetti covers immigration for The Post. I wanted to talk to her as the Trump presidency comes to an end. Recently, the news cycle has been consumed by the pandemic and the election, but it's worth remembering that immigration was the issue that Trump ran on, and in some ways was the hallmark of his presidency. You have people coming through the border that are from all over, and they're bad. They're really bad. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some I assume are good people. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. Even presidents who had deported immigrants in the past wanted immigrants to stay and wanted to be a welcoming country, you know, to immigrants and refugees. And President Trump really changed that narrative from his very first hours in office, uh, issued executive orders that made any undocumented immigrant a target uh, for deportation, where other presidents had tried to secure a path to citizenship for them. And he also singled out people from particular countries, you know, um, for example, in the travel ban, where, which still, you know, affects people from predominantly Muslim countries. So the mood changed, the policies changed, but and most especially the rhetoric changed. And this is the protection of the nation. Probably one of his most notorious from that first week was the executive order that became known as the Muslim ban. Protection of the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States. I remember it was a Friday, seven days after Trump's inauguration, and I had to sort of rush to the airport to cover the protests there. Can you tell me about what you remember from that time? This is actually one of the most vivid moments of my career and Trump's presidency. I, I remember it was a weekend and I was at home and and just, you know, doing some work around the house. And I got text messages saying, you have to go to the airport. And so I rushed over to the airport and there was just this growing chaos. Let them in! Let them in! Let them in! People who had taken for granted for years that they would easily get into this country. People who are scientists and professors, I mean, really highly um, skilled folks who never had too many problems getting into the country. They had visas, they could travel. Some had green cards, which is one step right below 
citizenship. I mean, really, by that time, you're you're kind of cruising in immigration, <laughs> usually, unless there's you commit a crime. And they were having trouble getting into the country if they were from, you know, nations such as Iran and others. And so many had come here because they you know, admired the United States, they they were seeking the freedoms they, you know, felt they didn't have in their native land. So, you know, in, in many ways, you know, they were very supportive of the United States. And so I remember being at the airport in Boston and lawyers and, and, and growing numbers of protesters and politicians and even the, the state attorney general, you know, showing up and, and trying to get people out and kind of having this standoff with federal customs and border protection agents. And then, they rushed to the federal court in the middle of the night and held an emergency hearing. And so people showed up at the court in their, you know, Saturday night outfits, you know, their cocktail dresses, party dresses. And uh, it, it was a surreal moment in the, in the middle of the night trying to stop this ban from taking effect. And the Trump administration had to um, rewrite this a few times, but ultimately they were able to, to put it into place. Surely, surely after... that ban. We began seeing reports that the Trump administration was considering a family separation proposal at the border. And then child separation ended up being one of the most controversial moments of Trump's presidency. Can you talk about what happened and what the response was there? So President Trump took office promising to stop you know, illegal immigration at the the southern border. So he made a number of promises that he would stop practices that he said, let people into the country and release them to await a court hearing. And the immigration courts are so backlogged that those can take years. And so people build roots. They have U.S. born children who are automatically citizens. And so President Trump felt that people were, quote, gaming the system. And you did see, you know, on the southern border, you did you did see people being smuggled. There were rising numbers of people seeking asylum and rising numbers of people traveling, often just one parent and one child, which which had not been very common, you know, in years past. And people would tell us this directly, you know, for for some people, for many people, it was a way to get into the country because the U.S. doesn't have uh, a lot of family detention space. There's a lot of opposition to that. But in in those groups, there are people who whose lives are literally in danger, who are running for their lives. And part of the federal government's job and part of our asylum law is to sort that out, you know, is to is to give each person a chance to make their case and to hear them. And that is what Trump in, in layers of policies tried to limit. So, so for example, family separation was, was one of his, some people called it the nuclear option. You know, it's something that had been discussed in the past and shot down, but it was one way to try to discourage people from coming to the United States. What they wanted to do was, was criminally prosecute parents for crossing the border without permission. It's a, it's a minor offense in federal court and tens of thousands of people have been prosecuted for this, usually single travelers, but they decided to impose this consequence on parents, even though they were with their children. And so parents would be taken to court. And and usually it's a matter of hours, if not minutes, they all plead guilty together and then they're returned to immigration detention. But when they, the parents came back, their children had been 
taken. And so they, they were sent to federal shelters and treated as if they had, you know, were unaccompanied with, by their parents. Mm-hmm. So it led to a, a extreme trauma for the children and the parents. Some of them are still separated to this day. You know, it was something that outraged Republicans as well, who called on him to stop it. And it, and it didn't, you know, people kept coming. And so it didn't have the effect that people wanted. And they never really prosecuted all the parents traveling with their children. You know, just so many people were showing up at the border. They were just overwhelmed. Yeah. What what are some of his other policies that were sort of like aimed at curtailing asylum seekers? So he had uh, several, you know, as- asylum bans. I mean, there's so many. And, and immigration lawyers will point out they're, they're layer upon layer. So that makes it a little bit difficult to to change them for president-elect Biden when he, when he takes office. The Migration Policy Institute, it's a, it's a think tank in Washington. They've estimated that more than 400 policy changes, executive orders, regulations, all these different things that are in place. You just told me that the, the Migration Policy Institute, that, that think tank in, in D.C., estimated that, you know, that president-elect Biden has around 400 policies and executive orders that he would have to like overturn or like take care of essentially in order to at least get back to the way things were under Obama, let alone like reform immigration. Do you think that Biden has the will or the ability to do that? He hasn't said, you know, whether he'll, you know, roll back every single thing Trump did. I know there's hopes that he will, but I think what what Biden's trying to do that Trump didn't try to do, which is probably one of the most important things, is is dealing with the 11 million people who are undocumented in the United States. That's something that the Obama administration did not get passed. The fact that that didn't pass, you know, under under the past administration, teed up Trump's campaign. You know, he really targeted undocumented immigrants in his speeches and. you know, it's something that if it remains unresolved could, you know, come up again in the next election. And so what Biden is trying to do and hoping to do is is not just, you know, he wants to restore DACA for dreamers. He wants to protect parents of U.S. citizens. Uh, he wants to let people who never committed any crimes stay in the United States. But to do that, you have to pass a law. Republicans and Democrats have to agree. And that's what he wants to do. Another big campaign promise was building the wall. Build that 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 wall. I'm just curious, you know, when his term ending, what's the status on that? Like, did he build the wall? So he did build parts of the wall and it's definitely unfinished as it was under the Bush administration. So before Trump took office, you know, there were there were parts like if you go down to Brownsville, Texas, for example, you'll go into someone's backyard and you'll see this extremely tall, you know, um, black wall and uh, and it just runs out and people can just (laughs) kind of go around it. Um, Now, what's invisible is are the sensors and cameras, you know, and, you know, the camouflage technology that the Border Patrol uses. And and that has been very effective for them um, to try to spot people. I mean, you can, using video cameras, you can actually see people 
walking across. And sometimes there were small time drug smugglers, you know, carrying like a jug of water and like a bale of marijuana on their backs. You know, you could see that. And the question is whether there's enough Border Patrol agents to go and find them. The wall physically is not much longer than it was under the Obama administration, but it's um, much, much taller than it used to be. So what Trump has done is replace a lot of wall. And so it's um, where it used to be, you know, maybe a vehicle barrier or something, you know, he's put put in place this towering structure and it's, uh, it's formidable where it is. If you stand next to it, you realize there is a difference. But there's huge gaps in it. And President-elect Biden has said he's not going to he's not going to build more of it. So Trump did a lot of things when it comes to immigration and got a lot done. But he also didn't get a lot of his own promises done, like the things he threatened to do, like building the wall, like overturning DACA or even just enforcing immigration laws that we already had effectively as Obama did. But I mean, I think as an immigrant myself, my experience under like the Trump administration was just a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty, right? Because one day I'd wake up and I'm like, oh my God, there's this new thing. Is my sister going to become a citizen? Oh my God, is my family from back home going to make it here? And so I'm just curious, like, What do you think this uncertainty did to people's lives? So I'm a little torn over this because I I feel like the Trump administration changed immigration policy, changed the narrative and made more people afraid. I saw a lot of this, though, under Bush and under Obama. You know, after 9-11, you know, the Bush administration rounded up hundreds of people, mostly Arab and Muslim men, and surveilled them for years and deported lots of them in secret. They deported hundreds of thousands of people, including from the interior of the United States. They did separate families that way. When you would go to immigration court, I would I would just be shocked by the chaos about people. I would watch people face deportation proceedings in chains the entire time. So there was a you know, there, there's an element here of just people finally started paying attention to what was going on and um, and treating some of it as if it was new and some of it wasn't. Uh, so, but what Trump definitely did is, you know, ramp up the rhetoric to the point that everybody started paying attention and it, it definitely intensified the anxiety. And then he would, you know, push the button on policies that, you know, until his administration were off limits, like physically taking children from their parents. Obama separated plenty of children from their parents through deportation, and so did Bush. But, you know, physically taking children from their parents before they've even had a chance, you know, to have a a, a court hearing on their asylum claim, you know, that, that we hadn't seen. It has always been highly unlikely that you would be deported. You know, as, you know, there's 11 million undocumented immigrants in the country. You know, maybe they deport less than 2% a year uh, or something like that. But I think the fear was broad. The rhetoric was broad. And, and what Trump did in engaging uh, local governments and state governments and having rallies was bring the, bring the fear down to the neighbor level. 
So someone with a Trump sign, you know, um, in their yard, you know, some some immigrants felt like, is that someone I can trust? You know, do they think I should be barred from the country? Do they think we shouldn't accept refugees like me? Because Trump made immigration the center of his uh, presidency, it became the center of a lot of people's lives. And I definitely saw much more anxiety, much more concern. Um, but I also, you know, I also really remember the anxiety under the Obama administration. I mean, it was also extreme and more people were mm-hmm. deported. So that for me as an immigration reporter, like that's like what really stood out to me is that things that people just, ordinary Americans just wouldn't blink at, or even immigrants who are green card holders and who said, well, you know, that's not me. You know, I'm a green card holder. I'm here illegally. You know, all of a sudden everybody felt affected. Maria Sacchetti covers immigration for The Post. And now, one more thing about the scotch egg. So basically, a scotch egg is a hard-boiled or soft-boiled egg. It's covered in sausage and breadcrumbs, and it's either deep-fried or baked. Um, It's very popular in the British Isles. Why is the scotch egg so important right now? That's producer Ariel Plotnik speaking to Adam Taylor, who covers foreign affairs for The Post. So the scotch egg kind of became an unlikely symbol of sort of the confusion surrounding what Britain's new coronavirus restrictions mean for pubs. Lately, Adam's been reporting on how the scotch egg has found itself in the crossroads of an unlikely national policy debate. So today, Britain announced that much of the country would be going into a very high level of alert for coronavirus. And that would mean there's lots of new restrictions, which includes pubs and restaurants are not allowed to stay open. They can only stay open for takeout. But much of the country is actually already in a high level of alert. And under those restrictions, pubs are allowed to stay open, but they have some pretty strict rules about how they can serve alcohol and what sort of food they can actually serve with that alcohol to make it count as a substantial meal. And so the scotch egg essentially became sort of a symbol of, you know, what is a substantial meal? Turned out it kind of depends on who in government you ask. Environment Secretary George Eustace appeared on a London-based radio station and he was asked, you know, what would constitute a uh, substantial meal? I think a Scotch egg probably would count as a substantial meal if there were table service. So the next day, Michael Gove, who's a pretty senior government official, he was appearing on a different TV show and he seemed to take quite a different stance. This is a big Scotch egg I've got in my hands. Is that a substantial meal? Um, Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's probably a starter. It kind of came to be sort of a symbol of you know, what is a substantial meal? What, is it, what, what do these rules about dining out actually mean? People and want clarity. So, so what is a substantial meal? Uh, well, it's been defined in law for years now. And well, what, what is that what, definition? What is it? You're, you're in charge of the law. Um, it's a, a yeah, matter but if of you common can't, sense. Sorry, with respect, Mr Gove, even you can't tell us what a substantial meal is. How is anybody supposed to know? And it was a little bit later than that, you know, he was interviewed by ITV News, and he said unequivocally... Uh, a scotch egg is a substantial meal. I myself um, uh, would 
definitely scoff a couple of scotch eggs um, uh, if I had the chance. And of course, it caused quite a lot of uh, debate and jokes from uh, the British press. It became you know, trending on Twitter. I got lots of uh, messages in WhatsApp groups about it. There's, there's been a lot of sort of distrust and confusion around what some of the British government's rules actually mean and why they're being implemented. You know, there there is quite a lot of nuance to them. You know, that leaves a lot of grey area and it sort of undermines the whole, like, reason for doing these these rules, which is to try and stop the spread of the virus. So what's actually at stake here if a pub misunderstands the rules? What happens if the food they serve doesn't fall into this gray area category of a substantial meal. So if, if a pub owner were to break these rules, in theory, they can be fined roughly $13,000 or, you know, face closure completely. And obviously, either one of those can be pretty devastating for a business owner. And, you know, it's also, I mean, without wanting to sound too cliched, British people really love their pubs. People want to be going back out and seeing their friends and drinking and stuff like that, but they don't necessarily want to be putting the pub owners in a position where they could be fined. Do you think a scotch egg is a substantial meal? <laughs> so I always thought of scotch eggs as being something that you would have when you're in a hurry or like when you're going on a picnic or something. I do actually really love them. I think they're really delicious. You know, it is a gray area. And I think that's why it kind of captured people's imagination is that you can see it both ways. And there is no sort of single right answer, I think. Adam Taylor writes about foreign affairs. Ariel Klotnick is a producer at The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Over the weekend, the country music legend Charlie Pride died of COVID-19 complications. We talked about Pride's legacy in a Post Reports episode about the Black roots of country music. With uh, Charlie Pride, you know, when he first started out, they did not reveal or, or print anything with his face on it. Most people didn't even know he was African-American. They didn't want him to record any love songs. We can't have him singing, you know, to these blonde-haired, blue-eyed chicks out here. We'll put a link to that episode in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Lena Mohammed. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.